Let's open our Bibles now to Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. Page 1017 of your Pew Bibles, and I encourage you to open those Pew Bibles today because uh, at one point in the sermon, I'm going to go through pretty quickly some of the verses that we're going to be reading. And so not only do I encourage you to open your Bibles and, uh, and read these words, see them for yourself, um, but after the scripture reading is concluded, to keep your scriptures open and uh, maybe to place it down beside you um, for the early part of the sermon so that you can pick it back up again as we consider God's word this morning. So we have a special opportunity today because it is the last Sunday of Advent, but we're all in the Christmas spirit already because it is also, of course, Christmas Eve day. And it's kind of a neat um, mood in the church today, I think, that Advent is the season of anticipation. It's a season of expectation. And December 24 is certainly the day, especially where children experience kind of the climax of anticipation during the whole calendar year. I remember our family tradition when I was a child growing up in the suburbs of Chicago to visit my dad's side of the family Christmas Eve. And so we would go there about 3, 4 o'clock and I would play with my cousins and then we would have to wait until after dinner was over to open the presents from my paternal grandparents. Now as much as I love my grandparents and my cousins and my family, it felt like a very long wait to me when I was a child. Just can't wait. You know, you see those presents under the tree and you're Tunnel vision gets just locked onto what could it be, what could be in that box um, underneath that wrapping paper for me. So we couldn't open presents until after dinner, and that required a lot of patience. It was, uh, like I said, the sort of a crescendo of anticipation building up for those first gifts that were opened, which were at my grandma and grandpa Van Dyke's house. Given that it's the morning of Christmas Eve day. I hope that we can keep our focus on God's word, uh, maybe even the, the little ones, for a little while this morning. That we can, we can think of this anticipation, this season of Advent, as Mary experienced it, as she prepared to deliver the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And so, um, it's still an Advent message, but of course, we'll find many Um, Christmas Eve day lessons for ourselves uh, in the passage as well. Having already prayed, let's read now in God's word, Luke 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months and returned home. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To fully appreciate Mary's expression of worship to God, it's helpful for us to know something about the historical context here, something about the Jewish culture of uh, Mary's day. In Jewish literature, of course, in the Old Testament, but also increasingly in the centuries leading up to this time, it was a very common theme for thinking of God as exalting the weak over the strong. It was uh, a teaching, of course, in the Old Testament in books like Daniel and Esther, where you find stories of just regular people who are kind of caught up in these big national events, like in Daniel's case, um, serving the king of Babylon, and in Esther's case, um, even rising to, um, the ro- to royalty. Um, and so you find the stories of the Old Testament, particularly the latter Old Testament, where regular people, people who seek God, who know the Lord, who follow him, are exalted to a high place in culture. And this theme really ramps up in what is called the intertestamental period. That, that means the time between the Testaments, which is about 350 or 400 years to the conclusion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. A lot of people wonder sometimes what happened during those years. Well, it was during that time where the Jewish people had various rulers um, over them. Some would permit them to practice their religion. Um, others were Uh, would persecute them very terribly. And so it was during one of those persecutions where something called the Maccabean Revolt occurred um, in some centuries preceding the birth birth of Christ. And it was in that Maccabean Revolt that the Jewish people had a great victory over um, the the king was Antiochus Epiphanes at the time and was a, a terrible persecutor of the Jewish people. And they actually, this small gathering of, of Jewish people, of soldiers, actually uh, accomplished freedom by God's grace for, uh, for many years. And so the, this story of the Maccabean Revolt was very prevalent in the minds of people in, in Jesus' day, in the world in which Jesus was born into. And again, the theme in that, that Maccabean Revolt was how this, this seemingly weak, small nation was able to prevail over a powerful army, over these people who hated God. And so the Jews in this day were anxiously awaiting another deliverance, were anxiously awaiting for God to once again raise up those who are weak and to humble those who are strong. The Jews had seen this, of course, throughout the Old Testament. You have the story of the Lord bringing the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt, defeating this powerful empire of Egypt with plagues and with the waves of the Red Sea. And then God delivers them later on from exile in Babylon, brings them back to their homeland so that they might rebuild their temple. And now the Jewish people again are under Roman rule. And although they live in relative peace, there was still a recognition that Israel was weak among the nations. And the rulers of the nations, were in many ways stronger. And so this made the genre of lament a popular genre to pray and to sing in this world. Uh, A lament is like singing the blues. 
And what happens when people sing the blues, even in our culture today, they recognize that not, is, not all is as it should be. And so this, this genre of lament in the Psalms would have been very popular in uh, the world that Jesus was born into. And, and this isn't just because of political reasons, but people would have their own personal reasons to lament as well, that there's something in their life that's difficult. Uh, there's some relationship that's not as it should be, or there's even some sin in their life that they need to bring before God because it's causing them distress. And so we find psalms of lament. About a third of the psalms are laments. And one example would be in Psalm 10. And so hear these words, and and as I'm reading, notice how this is in many ways undone by the song of Mary. Psalm 10, verses 1 through 4. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain causes and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And so this would have been a popular kind of song to sing in this day that we read about in our our passage today. Mary, though, trusted the Lord, and she would have had reason to, to cry out to God, but she did so trusting in him. That's what biblical lament will always do. It will bring your concerns before the Lord in faith. And so while the privilege of giving birth to Jesus would have been a great blessing to Mary, it was also a heavy burden for her to carry and would have tested her faith. She would have often wondered, how will I get through this? How will this work out for me? We can imagine the same thing happening in churches throughout the world today. We could think of places where there is persecution, like in China or in Pakistan, where there are Christians who just want to serve the Lord, want to live a life that proclaims Christ, want to talk with their neighbors about Jesus and about coming to church and are unable to do so because of persecution, either from the government or from their neighbors. And so these believers in these places where there is persecution also become familiar with songs of lament. We could imagine saying the same things that we read in Psalm 10. Where are you, Lord? Why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Those Christians in nations like China and Pakistan and Somalia are longing for a change. They're longing for freedom to worship, for a chance to talk with their extended family members, who they love about the Lord Jesus Christ and the life that he gives. They understand the season of Advent in a more profound way than I think we probably can here with with the freedoms that we enjoy They understand the season of Advent and of expectation, of longing for God to break in and bring deliverance. Injustices are committed against them, and they're accused of being rebellious citizens, even when the Christian citizen is actually the best citizen of all. And so they pray words like we found in Psalm 10. And maybe that could also describe you today for any number of reasons. What makes you recognize how weak you are? What is it that makes you see that you are are truly a a weak person? Um, Maybe 
have some moral weakness or would recognize our smallness in relation to the culture that surrounds us that seems to be heading in a direction so swiftly that is far away from God? What is it that causes you to recognize, to recognize I am truly weak, God? Or what is it that discourages you? Are you searching for answers and unable to find a solution? This is so often the case for people who go and see doctors and they just can't get to the solution no matter how many appointments they go to. Also something that would rec- make us recognize our weakness, a physical weakness. It's popular in our culture to say, I don't have any regrets. But we all know that that isn't true for anyone, that, that our regrets can make us feel so weak as well. A recognition of our sin prompts us to ask God, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So all of this recognition of weakness and all of these questions, Mary answers in the great passage that we read. Mary's words in Luke 1 are God's answers to all those prayers and songs of lament. The Psalms of lament ask questions of God. And Mary sees how God has answered all of those questions through Christ. Notice all the sentences that begin with, He has. Mary is recounting all the things that God has done. Verse 48, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And so what a contrast to Psalm 10. Do you see me, God? I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to live for you. I'm I'm showing that, that I love you by the way that I act and the and hopefully in the way that I think, are you, do you see me, God? And we find in verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, the next verse, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And so what were questions are now answers in Luke chapter 1. And the theme continues in verses 51 through 55. And again, if you have your Bibles open, you could look there. The words will also be on the screen of I've italicized some of all the all the he hases that we find in this great passage. What has God done? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. So we can spend so much time in the present and in thinking about the future, but this passage calls us to think about what God has done. When we fail to do this, when we forget what God has done, we do so to the detriment of our own faith. If you forget what God has done yesterday, you will struggle to trust him today. If you forget What God has done this past year, you will struggle to trust him in the year that is ahead. In the new year, I'm going to be uh, preaching a lengthy sermon series on Genesis 1 through 3. I know that when I normally do that, we take about three weeks, one week per chapter. But we're going to do a deep dive into God's creation, into all of the great teaching that we find in those first three chapters of the Bible. And it's in those chapters that we see the story of Adam and Eve falling into sin. And what was the tactic that the serpent used to cause Adam and Eve to sin? He 
he prompted them, he tempted them to forget what God had done, forget God's goodness, forget God's love for them, and question the goodness of God or God's plan for their lives. And when we fall into this trap of forgetfulness, when we fall into that temptation that is set before us every day, we fall into sin. That's when we fall into despair. But Mary and her song here reminds us, calls us to remember. She worships God because of what he has done for her and what God has done for his people. It's often the case that I'll remind uh, you of, of what, what would make for a good sermon. It's kind of a strange thing for me to do as a preacher, but, but something that I would hope that you hold me to. And I, I'll often say, a good sermon is about God. Sounds kind of obvious, but actually isn't always what happens uh, from a pulpit. But a good sermon is about God, about what God has done. After all, we gather not to hear good advice. We gather to hear good news. Good news about what God has done for us in Christ. And this passage is about God. What has God done? Can God hear your prayers? He has. Can God keep his promises? He has. Can God save sinners? He has. And so therefore, have faith in God. Put your trust in the Lord. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Those were the words of Mary as she was in a very vulnerable, a difficult situation, but she's remembering all of God's faithfulness to generations previous, all of God's faithfulness to her cousin Elizabeth, who has just prophesied a blessing over her, and Mary is just full of praise. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In the same way that Mary could worship the Lord during a difficult time in her life, the Christian today will be a worshiper when you remember what God has done in your life and in the world. And this isn't just wishful thinking. It's actually the opposite of a call to blind faith. Sometimes people think of Christianity as just kind of putting your faith in this religious system and hoping things work out for the best. But this is the opposite of that, actually. This is to say, look at all that God has promised all that God has done, here's the record of it in his word, and we also have the record of it in, Christ, in church history. Look at all that God has done and put your faith in him. See what he has done. Just remember this, this passage of, of Luke 1, all the, what is it, 7 or 8. He has shown strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud and lifted up those who are humble. He who is mighty has done great things. For us, we should remember how God has heard our prayers as a church. I know that um, it's it's one of our practices here at Ammon Valley to show pictures of the previous year, right around New Year's, and each time we see those pictures, hopefully, each one represents an answer to prayer. Even if it's just a picture of the gems having fun at. Uh, a kickoff party or something. I mean, that's an answer to prayer. 
that people would offer up prayers that the Lord would gather girls from our community and girls from our church to hear the gospel, to meet the Savior, and there they are. And so even something as simple as looking at a picture of gems or cadets or youth group or even a sanctuary of worshiping people, each one reminds us what God has done and is doing and has promised to continue to do. More specifically, we can think of how God has heard our prayers for healing for some in our congregation that we've offered up to him earnestly. I remember, and I don't think I'll ever forget, standing before you several years ago after Sherwin-Hybor's double lung transplant surgery happened. And we had been praying for this. Sherwin was, was, was very, very weak and desperately needed new lungs. It was a very difficult surgery. And I remember standing before you and saying, God has heard our prayers provided lungs for Sherwin, provided a heart for Jean Vandersher, has, has helped these, these members of our church who we love and who we prayed for so earnestly. God did it. He listened. He's done it. How quickly we forget, though. How quickly we can forget the great things that God has done. And so that's why we need his word and we need each other to help one another remember. Uh, One of the priorities that I have in writing sermons is to connect a passage of Scripture, not just to your lives, but to something in church history. And I know that for some people it probably seems a little bit academic when I bring up um, St. Augustine or the Venerable Bede or Herman Bovink, some of these great saints of the past centuries. But I'm motivated to do so because when we see that God was faithful in the 4th century and the 8th century and the 18th century, we'll be more likely to believe that he'll be faithful in the 21st century too. It's essential that we know God's word. We have in God's word all that we need for life and doctrine, but it's also helpful that you would know the stories of what God has done in building and preserving his church for 2,000 years. I'm strongly convinced, actually, that, that one of the dangers in modern evangelicalism today is forgetting what God has done in the church over the past 2,000 years. It's sort of a withdrawal from what God is doing or has done in places that are outside the walls of a local congregation. But we have it all there, and not just in, in the stories of Scripture, but in histories, biographies, Church history books. For example, a Christian in our culture today could feel overwhelmed when considering how the world around us can seem so set against knowing God and obeying the commands of God. You could feel overwhelmed by this, wondering what good could come from this? How could God turn this around? And you would feel overwhelmed until you remember all the times that God has done these types of things in the past, transformed whole societies, drawn people to himself through Christ, through revival, through the outpouring of his word and spirit. God has done this. And so when you remember what he's done, you'll go into the rest of this day and the week ahead with confidence in the Lord, hoping that he could do it again. The more you know about history and how the gospel can transform people and whole societies, the less fear you will have for our nation, 
for California, for our community. Sometimes people can almost talk about uh, this nation where we live or, or the state of California as it's almost like a lost cause. Those are people who forget what God has done in the past. What God has done many times in many societies and cultures, bringing transformation through his word and spirit. So I want to remind you of of a lesson I've shared with you before from a great sermon by Charles Spurgeon, who taught this in the late 1800s. He taught that the Christian can be hopeful for the future because the Christian knows what God has done in the past. And so to use this, he he used the illustration of, of a bow and arrow. And so he said, the further back you pull the bowstring, the further the arrow will fly forward. And he said, this is, in a way, what the Christian life is like in terms of your hope for the future. The further back you can remember what God has done, the more confident you will be heading into the future that God has laid out for you. It's a wonderful word picture that I think will hopefully be imparted to our minds that we would, whenever we would be discouraged about 2024 or something that's happening in the week ahead or in, in the year ahead, we would remember, we would sort of pull the bowstring back far. <laughs> what have you done in the past, God, so that you would be launched into the year that is ahead with confidence in him? We find this happening in Acts chapter 2. What has God done for 120 people gathered in a room in Jerusalem? 120 people worshiping Jesus. Do, you, do we feel sometimes like a little fish in a very big ocean? Imagine how those 120 people felt on the Sunday of Pentecost. What did God do? He filled that place with his spirit. And they heard the word of God. They heard the message of Christ. They poured out of that place to share the message with their neighbors. They, they spoke in tongues so that more people could understand. And on that day, 3,000 were added to their number. And 2,000 years later, millions of believers later, we can say with Mary, the Lord has done great things. He has been merciful. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servants in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So if you want to worship God like Mary did, know God and remember what he has done. Tonight, when you read the Christmas story, whether you do this by yourself or do this with small children, would you open the the, the passage of Luke chapter 2, and we'll hear the passage tomorrow. When you do this, you are remembering what God has done. When we do this with our children, we're rooting their identities in something that God has done for our salvation. We're rooting their identities in something that has happened in this world for our sakes. To borrow a phrase from Mary, he has come into the world to save sinners. He has taken on flesh and made his dwelling among us. He has died and has been raised to life. And when you remember what God has done, the response will be the same as that of Mary's. Your soul magnify the Lord 
and your spirit will rejoice in God, who is your Savior. Amen. Let's pray.